Hello everyone. Welcome to Sectools podcast by Infosec Campus. I'm your host of the show Sanup Thomas. We have a special guest with us today, uh ST Moore the man himself. ST, uh welcome to the show. Uh thanks Sanup. Happy to be here. Um so everyone uh, in the Infosec industry knows about your work. Uh everyone has used your projects. Uh but it's good to hear from your point of view. Uh, how did you all started Infosec? Oh yeah, sure. Um so I got my start really in the BBS and kind of dial-up days. So before there was actually an internet internet, um it was just lots of word dialing, lots of freaking uh, calling cards, all that fun stuff back then. Um and so I kind of grew up doing the dial-up stuff and the word dialing stuff and then once the internet appeared and had access to it, um I really kind of dove into it with the same uh perspective that I had on the phone side, which is exploring the kind of great unknown of the world's communication systems. Um so, you know, since the late 90s I've been running code to scan the internet to you know find vulnerabilities to run exploits to kind of you know, dig into different systems um uh, and that that's really it oh that's awesome um and then uh, how how like how did you start writing uh, tools for uh, infosec community uh so my background is not a programmer um you know i kind of grew up reading downloaded zine files and finding snippets of C code that other people who actually knew how to code wrote and then trying to figure out what they did just through brute force. Um so never took a programming class in my life uh and eventually just kind of absorbed enough information to start doing a little bit of development myself. Um so while most of the folks who were writing exploits and things like C and other languages at the time I was still kind of messing around with things like Visual Basic back in the 90s and then uh Perl and then later on Ruby and things like that. Uh these days I mostly write Go. Um uh, but for the most part I've never really been a strong programmer. Um and you don't really need to be to be in security you just have to write just enough code to be able to do whatever your um your, whatever your goal is i see i read i have read uh, before um in an infosec book about metasploits that the first uh uh idea of metasploit was not supposed to be like an infosec um you know pen testing tools or an exploit exploit uh, exploitations or exploit development tools toolkits but the idea initially was supposed to be like an um online gaming how how did metasploit project started like how did that idea came to you oh yeah so back in the day there was these um door games and muds there's one in particular that I played a lot called overkill and it's basically just a big grid in your terminal and you'd move from square to square and you have various actions like you attack things or loot things or move around things like that um i realized early on that you know you could treat the network like a game board so every address in a slash 24 for example would be a dot on a 16 by 16 grid as we started writing this uh curses based client in perl that would map out the network show you where all the nodes are and let you move over to the nodes and try to attack them and break into them so of course we had you know we had exploits for that so you had some kind of scanning tool you had that some exploits and that's really what the original version of metasploit 1 became is just uh turning that um silly kind of encurses game idea into something we can actually use for uh pen testing and security work interesting so you were the only person developed it in the initial stage or you have any ideas like any any companion friends Um back then I was working at a firm uh one of my earlier startups where um we had this big team full of pen testers so you know I definitely got lots of feedback from the team then I was the only person writing code at least for the first year of Metasploit from 2003 till I think um beginning of I guess late 2003 Spoonem joined and then early 2004 uh Matt Miller/Scape joined um so by 2004 through 2007 or so it was really three of us who were running the project uh and then over time uh Spoonem went off and did his own thing again uh Mac got acquired slash hired by uh Microsoft um and then I kind of picked it up from there and ended up bringing Egypt onto the team and then Egypt and I 
uh, mostly ran the project for the next uh, five or six years. Great. I mean, it's an amazing project, and especially I like the idea of like how it is being architected. Uh, I'm not sure in the initial phase um, how how the whole uh, design was, but now that um, it it lets the community to basically build plugins and you know custom payloads um, and and exploit modules, uh, and it's it's very like pluggable manners. And how how was the the design in the initial phase? Pretty similar. The idea behind it was you'd always have pluggable exploits, modules, payloads, knobs, encoders. So if you knew how to write exploits, great, you can work on the exploit piece of it. If you knew how to write shellcode and payloads, you can work on that part. If you want to write crazy encoders, bypass IDSs, you can do that piece. And same thing with the protocol libraries. We try to make sure that all the components were kind of loosely coupled, can easily be recombined. So when you're um, configuring an exploit to use a Metasploit, you can choose exactly what exploit, exactly what payload, which encoders, what knob sleds. You can set all kinds of fun transport options. And there's really two reasons for that. One is it's really flexible. You can do really cool things with it that you can't do if it was all hard-coded, like existing exploits at the time. Um, so for example, um, if you're trying to exploit a DNS server and the exploit you're using has a hard-coded bind shell, you'd have to replace that bind shell with a reverse connect if there's a firewall in place, things like that. So just from a practical standpoint, we really needed to be able to swap out payloads on the fly. And then once um, antivirus really became more prevalent as an exploit defense mechanism, um, we had to do a lot of work to work around um, exploit mitigations and antivirus as well at the payload level. So over time, it became that kind of modular approach became really successful from a technology and um, kind of practical use case. But the other side effect of that was people who really knew one area, but maybe not another one, could still contribute. So even if you didn't know how to write exploits at all, but you really like writing assembly code, you could still contribute to Metasploit as a payload developer. And if you didn't know shellcode, you knew assembly, you can contribute as a module developer. And if you want to work on the protocol stack or do it in, you know, IDS evasion or all kinds of other fun things below the um, hood on the protocol side, you could do that as well. So there's lots and lots of ways to contribute to Metasploit. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that the project did so well is that it didn't really matter what your background was. There's usually some way you, you could contribute. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think, uh, I'm not sure if in those, those ages, those, uh, that kind of a design was existing in other, other products. But later, a lot of uh, uh, projects have actually adopted that design, um, design patterns and build uh, frameworks and like, you know, pluggable modules and, and um, uh, th those kind of uh, design architecture. And that's, that's really inspiring work for you. So th thanks for uh, the whole Metasploit project to the Infosec communities and make it like available for community to experiment with and, and uh, you know, basically learn, learn how exploit actually works. And that's, that's really the beauty of it. So yeah, thank, thanks on behalf of uh, all Infosec community. I'm, I'm happy it's the project is doing as well as it has and survived this long and it wouldn't be anything about the community. I mean, so many of the, uh, so much of what happened with Metasploit was driven by either people contributing code directly or feedback from users or just kind of the overall trends of the security community. So what we try to do is kind of like grab the, the zeitgeist of the security community and just keep rolling it forward. Whenever there's a new trend or a new exploit or a new technique or a new vulnerability, uh, we roll it into Metasploit and then maintain it for the rest of its life. So, you know, if you find a cool bug or find a cool proof of concept, a lot of times those things would get published and then they'd stop working two years later when the code doesn't compile anymore, libraries go out of date, things like that. Um, one of the goals with Metasploit was to be kind of a living archive of all those techniques and all that research over time. So as stuff is being developed, um, it becomes kind of useful forever. You can always load up an exploit from 2002, from 1998, from you know, 2015, whatever, whatever have you. Like it supports all that still. And that's, it's an amazing amount of work to do that. And the, the team that's maintaining it does a great job. But that's one of the goals too, is to having this kind of living, breathing archive of security research. Yeah, true. 
Uh, when you when you were with uh, Metasploit projects as as a developers or as the visionary of that that whole project, do you remember any uh, fun moments or any challenging moments in the uh, whole development? There's a lot of really strange things that happened, uh, especially given uh, our relationships with both vendors and with Black Hats. Uh, we would have vendors sending us all kinds of terrible things. Like early on, uh, so if you go back to like kind of 2002, 2003 era. Uh, a lot of companies thought exploit publishing an exploit should be illegal. And yeah, so yeah. just starting to work on Metasploit, just even doing the early versions of that, we had threats against me from our customers. Uh, my employer at the time wasn't telling people that I worked there. Uh, we had people trying to get me fired a lot. Later on, we had um, all sorts of legal stuff happening where folks were trying to indict us and various things. And it took a long time for that to blow over. And at the end of the day, we finally won. Exploits became a thing that we can all kind of accept and do. So there's a lot of just crazy stuff that happened from um, third-party pressure, external pressure, bad press, folks at various large vendors trying to, uh, you know, harm us in various ways. Uh, and then on the other side of that, we had all the black hats who often would use our code as well, who put that, you know, take something out of Metasploit, put it into a worm, put it into their backdoor kit. And yeah, yeah. they would kind of be tangentially involved at the level, like we'd get random contributions with like their anonymous that had a really cool exploit in it. Later on, we realized that exploit had been used for a year straight kind of on the underground, and they were just done with it and dumping it. So it was really interesting to see like all the kind of interesting overlaps between kind of the criminal activity as well as like the large vendors. And honestly, you couldn't tell them apart sometimes. Yeah, true. I think those discussions are kind of coming back in uh, these day, these recent days. Like they're talking about like softer ethics and whatnot. The name, like all, all we are jargons on that. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, you know, it's just uh, making, making um, security things more open to, people it's not really like a black hole anymore yeah and it doesn't really, i feel like there's definitely more conversations happening around disclosure around tool disclosure these days and i think it's silly because that that war has already been won you know the cat's out of the bag it's become a thing there's no law against writing exploits or sharing details or publishing vulnerabilities anything is becoming more common more open and that's awesome like bug bounty submitted just amazing um so i love the fact that if you don't know anything about security and you want to learn you can start hacking a real like fortune 50 us company right now legally True, true. Yeah, when when we when we talk about like metasploits, I I can't you know um, skip the fact uh, or 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 skip the modules metaprotter, right? Uh, how how did that that whole idea of like metaprotter itself is like a massive, and there are definitely a lot, lot of other interesting um, interesting modules in metasploit framework, but metaprotter is like something that that uh, pretty much everybody will will fiddle around in the, in the initial stage of uh, experimenting with the tools. Um, do you remember any any memories of like building or designing that uh, that specific modules? That was all Matt Miller. Um, Skate did an amazing job of that. He built this. Not only did he write like a sixty-page white paper describing the internals of Interpreter, even before it was like early on, even before he even knew what a Interpreter was, he had this massive document describing the TLD structure, how to encode things. Like he just did, he did an amazing amount of work in it early on. He treated it like a real software engineering project. So. When that uh, first payload was released, everyone's like, holy crap, this thing is huge. It's got tons of features. It can do all this stuff. That was back when, um, you know, core security was doing syscall proxying. Uh, I think um, Canvas and Unity folks had something else that was pretty similar to it as well. Um, but it was kind of a different approach. Like the core folks and the immunity folks were taking the approach of a very low level proxying, like submitting kind of on the fly shellcode snippets uh, to do things. Whereas Meterpreter was like, no, here's a full blown Thing. Here's the thing with lots of features. Here's the thing that has all the functionality built into the remote side of it. And so early on, Metropeter was very different from the payloads of the day because most payloads at the time were designed to do these kind of low-level syscall stuff where Metropeter really was, here's an entire full remote DLL container. 
And the cool thing about Interrupter is the way they did DLL injection, that was all um, a gentleman who goes by the name JT, I believe, it's, it's been a while. Um, but he found this really awesome way to do in-memory DLL injection in Windows. So those two techniques went hand in hand. Um, the Metropeter work dovetailed really nicely with the uh, DLL injection work. Um, that all got uh, overhauled a couple more times by the researchers over the years. Um, I'm spacing some of the names right now, so I apologize. But there's a lot of uh, really sharp folks who are involved, both with the DLL injection side as well as the interpreter um, uh, development going forward. And you know, interpreter these days is, is even better. It has like a full blown interpreter built into it. You can embed Python into it. You can embed Lua into it. Um, you can have a totally autonomous version of an interpreter that once that payload is injected in place, it does everything all by itself and just checks in on its own with arbitrary transports. It has an amazing amount of flexibility, uh, given that it's essentially just a shellcode payload. Yeah. I mean, there is also like a lot of jokes around uh, interpreter, especially when, you know, things like there are some rewritten, rewritten happens on interpreter, like, you know, get system jokes and stuff like that. Were you part of that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the um, kind of memes that came out of Menace Flight were we had this a couple um, features that were just misunderstood. There's one called DB Autopone that would essentially just kind of throw random exploits at targets based on your MMAP load. And it never worked right. It just crashed everything all the time. It would do multiple concurrent exploits against SMB. Like the system would like reboot. Like most systems you try to attack would either crash, fall over, reboot. Like even if you had a working exploit, it wouldn't work right. And then the get system command and interpreter was very similar where folks just assumed it would magically get them system access when it wasn't. Essentially, they thought that get system meant, well, I've got a low privileged account. Obviously, this will just magically exploit Windows for me and get system. And that's not the case. It would just try to use a very um, straightforward path to get system if you already have admin privileges. So some of the that's kind of the fun bits about working with the security community is sometimes the details of these things get lost in the noise and people start to believe things that aren't necessarily true, but it's a lot of fun to, uh, <laughs> to go through this for sure. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely enjoy those memes and those those jokes around <laughs> around those magical uh, black holes around interpreters. Uh, meta, so it's it's fun. It's fun to see like people just getting like glittery eyes when they see like, hey, there is a shell pop up, but I don't know how how it happened. I just typed like get system. That's fun. Um, great. So so these days um, you're working on uh, more on the asset discovery side. Um, tell me about it. Or oh, how, how is your research going on? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I've been working on like internet-wide scanning and network scanning stuff forever. Um, there's a bunch of scanning tools built into Metasploit that were kind of unique at the time. Um, there's the ability to like retrieve um, not just the MAC address over NetBIOS, but the list of all of the system's remote IP addresses. That was baked into, um, I think, Metasploit 2 even. It, it was been there forever. So I had this giant pile of neat network utility tricks and network scanning tricks I've been sitting on and, you know, contributing to open source tools for years. Um, and finally, I realized, you know, no one's really doing just discovery, right? Like, so I decided I wanted to build a product that just did network discovery and asset inventory. So the idea is like, you can uh, drop an agent somewhere in the network, you can scan the entire network and quickly find and identify everything on the network, whether it's a toaster, a smart TV, a printer, a Windows desktop, a server, it does everything. It doesn't care if it's ICS, medical, clinical, it's safe to scan everything. So that became uh, Rumble Network Discovery, which the website's rumble.run. And we do like free 21 day trials, um, but it's definitely a commercial project. Even though it is commercial though, we are doing a lot of work with the open source side. Uh, we maintain a MAC address database. We track the MAC address ages that came from working with the deep MAC project. Uh, we've got a project called, uh, sorry, Rep7 has a project called Recog, which is essentially an entire fingerprint database of Nexpos was made open source a few years back. That was then used by Metasploit and Metasploit Framework as the primary fingerprint database for those platforms. And now that I've started working on Rumble, Rumble also uses the same database and contribute a ton of fingerprints back to it. 
So we're using our, um, our beta customers and our own kind of internal data to generate more fingerprints and contribute that back to Recog, which in then turn gets used by Metasploit, Metasploit Framework, Nexpose, and of course, Rumble as well. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I said discovery is something that a lot of people have their own interpretations on how things actually works. But uh, what, are, what are your takes on like, you know, the, the, the more efficient way of like identifying assets uh, in the network? Uh, probably in a very complex um, yeah, enterprise networks. Like, wh what's your un um, take on it? Well, I mean, there's two big trends that are happening um, in the discovery space. For the most part, authenticated scanning doesn't work very well anymore. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you've seen vulnerability scanners put less and less effort on pre-authenticated scanning and do more authenticated scanning. But that doesn't work if you don't have credentials to every box in the network. And even if you do have credentials, you're sending your credentials to every system that you scan on the network as well. So authenticated scanning and unauthenticated scanning from the, on the vulnerability management side have become kind of complicated. So what we're seeing instead is folks are moving more towards um, passive-based network discovery. So they're you know, basically snooping all the traffic on the switches, using that to figure out what things are, and using that to do um, asset inventory. And that's great. It works okay. The challenge is you need to have central access to every network switch. You need to pull that data into it. It's a really heavy footprint. Um, the reason folks have gone down that path though is because they're on one, set, one side, they're scared of actively scanning because it's complicated. And they also, it's hard. You don't really get a lot of information from an active scan. You have to do kind of the same level of effort that it takes to write an unauthenticated vulnerability scanner. You have to do the exact level of research to be able to do unauthenticated device discovery and asset inventory. Um, you have to use all kinds of fun techniques to leak out fields of different protocols to figure out whether it's this device or that device, look at TCP window sizes, use some protocol level fingerprinting, application level tweaks. Um, it's just a whole lot of work. So, uh, so I believe like a lot of folks have moved away from active scanning or inventory and network discovery because it became really, really hard. But I still feel like it's the best way to do it and it's the only way to do it in a lot of cases. Any situation where you can't install a passive network tap or you can't do authenticated scanning to a box because it has a firewall enabled. Um, the more people move towards hardened desktops to kind of this beyond security, uh, beyond corp security model, um, the more that uh, these normal authenticated scanning tools aren't going to work anymore. So that's my take. My take is that you can still do active scanning. It's just a whole lot harder than it used to be. But if you do it right, you can provide really efficient, really useful, really accurate asset inventory. And that's what we're trying to do with Rumble. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting perspective of it. Um, and, and also, like, you know, um, is your is your project actually working on like in some some um, you know a active monitoring as well? Like if something new came up and then it just shows those results. Uh, we have some customers use this for monitoring. What they'll do is they'll just run continuous scans, so they'll have back to back scans across everything. When a new device pops up, they'll say, "Hey, we don't know what this device is," and throw an alert. So we've got like web folks and email and all that fun stuff. Um, about half of the work that goes into Rumble isn't even the fingerprinting side or the scanning side of the UX. It's all the asset tracking side. So trying to uniquely identify an asset as it moves around the network, as it changes IPs, as firewall rules change on it, that's actually really hard. And so we have all these like, fun techniques we use for that. We'll leak out uh, the TLS fingerprint from the remote desktop port. We'll pull the SMB GUID off the SMB2 protocol. Uh, all kinds of fun things that we, we can extract from a device that become a unique attribute that, that we can then use to follow it as it changes IPs. So that whole side of asset tracking, I think, has been undervalued so far. But the reason, the reason, uh, the reason that a lot of folks don't do active scanning today is specifically because DHCP leases and uh, gas networks really just throw a wrench into most inventory tools that try to do it. So we spend a lot of effort trying to make that work right. Um, great. Uh, I think uh, we are uh, almost at the end of uh, this podcast sessions. Before we wind up, there are a lot of aspirant uh, InfoSec uh, enthusiasts 
um people who want to write tools um uh, for for the communities people who want to basically maybe write written tools before but they have not published it they wanted to like expose it to infosec community and get some feedbacks um what's your advice or what's your two sentences on people who are getting into infosec um in general there's there's you can't really start off too small you can always find a small thing you can contribute to whether it's just helping the documentation of an existing project whether it's adding a really small feature um if you're intimidated by building a big feature set and then having it rejected from a pull request or someone telling you that you don't like it um start off small and kind of build up from there and start when you start getting more confidence in how the project that you're contributing to does their project management how they want their pull request formatted how what the build the code formatted then you can start really picking up speed and going from there um i think the biggest challenge folks run in is just how do you get started like uh how do you take that first step of building something and sharing it and all i can say is like my friends have been awesome the security community has been awesome anytime you can build something and share it with your friends first and get some really good feedback about this or you know get to know some people who write other tools and ask them for their feedback so if there's someone who wrote a tool that does like a uh, you know OSINT discovery or port scanning and you want their feedback about your tool that does similar stuff they're more than happy to give it they this is what we like doing so um you know if you like doing asset inventory you want to do network scanning or you like doing exploit development reach out to me directly i'm happy to give you feedback about your tool and you know where you might be able to go with it i think that's also true of almost every open source developer out there in the security space is they really love that feedback they like people reaching out to them they want to kind of you know interact with people who have the same uh, ideas and want to build the same thing so don't be scared to reach out to people that are you know established in the field that have already built something um they're no different than you are they they just like chatting about the cool things they like to work on Awesome. Um thanks HD. Uh it was a nice piece of an advice. I mean it's something that I also take myself uh because I was a bit scared to actually reach out to you in the beginning. But <laughs> uh but yeah, I mean you you're pretty pretty fast response. You guys got a response like just in a day. So it, it was amazing. So I I I really appreciate that. And thanks again for all your work to the Infosec communities and you your work has inspired like I don't know how many people. uh definitely inspired me and and uh, i mean at least at least anyone that i know have actually inspired by your work so thanks for doing that um it was amazing to talk to you well, thank you very much for having me uh thanks again thanks everyone for listening to the podcast we'll talk to you in the next episode